One path, one choice, we win, or everyone dies. This is There and or Back Again, a special series by My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast on the latest Star Wars television show, Andor. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle-earth, but here we jump into hyperspace to a galaxy far, far away. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeten. Today's episode is Announcement, the seventh episode of Andor. Our spoiler warning for this series, we will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far in Andor and any knowledge we may have of the Star Wars universe to date. I don't think much of that will matter, but between the two of us, we've consumed quite a bit of Star Wars books, cartoons, comics, and games, so eventually tangential stuff will come out. And as a quick reminder up top, we do want to hear from you in our emails at mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com. We would love to get your and or thoughts and talk about them as we cover the rest of this season. In Eldani, the Rebellion loudly announced its arrival, and the galaxy responds in turn. The Empire does what it does best, tighten its fist. It's martial law across the galaxy— all crimes are capital offenses, all fines must be enforced, prison numbers must be inflated. Stormtroopers and Star Destroyers descend on our narrative at long last, menacing audiences for the first time in a long time. It's all hands on deck for the Imperial Security Bureau, and upstart Deidre Miro gets her first win, outmaneuvering Supervisor Blevins in uncovering a rebel strategy. They know our protocols and procedures and are planning their attacks in ways that imperial bureaucracy obfuscates with segregation and barriers. Supervision of Morlana Sector is handed over to her to further pursue her suspicions, but not without a warning from Major Partigaz. Watch your back. The rebel attack is also sending ripples through the various levels of resistance. Mon Mothma confronts Luthen Rael about the Eldani heist, which he downplays but quietly confirms was his operation. The network is built, the time has come, but he still needs more money, something Mon could provide. That is, if she can corral Tay Colma, a Chandrillan banker and lifelong friend, to her side. Taking Mon to be a neoliberal tryhard, Tay is reluctant to let Mon in on his politics. But in some girl-bossing politic, affectionately I say, she turns the tables on him. It's just lies. Deception. What she does in the shadows is real, but to keep doing that, she needs access to her family's considerable wealth, wealth that is being closely overseen by the Empire. Luthen, meanwhile, sends his assistant Clea to treat with Vel, who cleans up quite nice, I should say. Clea stresses the error in the meeting. Messages are risky both to sender and recipient, but this is a message she had to get to Vel. Cassian Andor needs to be eliminated. He's a risk to Luthen and to the Rebellion. Just another burden placed on Vel, who's still separated from her par partner Sinta, still hiding in the Aldani lowlands while the Empire moves in with force. Which brings us to the titular character himself. Andor just won, and he wants to walk away. He returns to Ferrix to corral Mom Marva and say his goodbye to Bix. The latter dips him in truth. The Imperials have locked down Ferrix because of you. Tim has his share of blame, but so do you. You put all of us in danger. But Marva engulfs Cassian in truth. The rebellion is here. It's overdue and probably doomed, and she's too old and she doesn't care anymore. She's not leaving. She's not walking away. 
You can't beat them that way. A truth Cassian learns all too well, as his escape to the planet Niamos ends in Imperial imprisonment, sentenced to six years for looking the wrong way at an Imperial beach cop. <laughs> and that is your summary for episode seven of Andor. Emily, where do you want to start? Oh my god, at the beginning. No, with all of it. Uh, oh my god, this whole episode. Uh, like, when we, like when, when we got to the end of it when we were watching it, I like felt genuine shock in my soul when it cut to the 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 end credits i was like wait what the fuck like this is over already this surely this was only 20 minutes and and it was not it was 45 minutes and i'm heartbroken at uh having to uh having to wait another week um and so because i'm already heartbroken at that i don't want to jump right into the heartbreaking parts of this episode and instead let's talk about terminator k2 because i think that was one of the fun touches and and probably Probably one of the best executed quote unquote references we've had in uh, in this show so far. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, this is near the end of the episode, and when Cassian's being interrogated by the Imperial Shore Trooper, <laughs> love that new terminology. Um, we see uh, KX droid kind of it's walking up a set of stairs, and the way the camera's positioned, we just kind of see his head emerge first, and then his body, and everyone presumably has seen Rogue One, so they think is this K two SO, and then they play on that dramatic irony because once he fully steps into frame, you see he has two rabble rousers like in each of his hands that he just throws easily off to the side and then a second uh kx droid emerges so we're kind of in the maybe this is k2so but no they are just absolutely leaning into these are fucking imperial heavy troops or heavy droid troops kind of um it's great yeah and I think this is, you know, you know um, I, I kind of call this sort of half sarcastically uh, a reference. And obviously it is a reference. It's, it's referring to the canon that, that already exists. But I, I think this is um, canon referencing at its absolute finest. Um, I think there's an element to which this shows... Uh, like it shows that it is possible to do a prequel that has a genuinely positive impact on the thing that comes after it. Um, and I mean by that, like, you know, K and K2SO in Rogue One is, is, uh, is there for comedic relief. Like, you know, he has this sort of edgy backstory, which is that he's an XM droid. Uh, and that is, you know, if you stop to think about it, it's compelling in its own way. But Rogue One as a film isn't really concerned with making very much of that, except for a couple, you know, moments like on Jetta, where it's like, oh, shit, did Jen actually shoot? Okay, and the answer is of course no, um, but but it doesn't really make a, a huge amount about this issue of of K being an ex imperial droid, um, and this shows us how terrifying k2 is like he is already you know he has the sort of like features of being something terrifying he's like a 10 foot tall droid and he's made of pure metal he's made to like fuck people up uh, that smack when he smacks cash in, in on jetta sounds like it hurts even though diego una is uh, adorably cracking up uh when when it uh when we see it in the movie in rogue one um, but there's this kind of clear sort of thought around, like within the kind of show running team here about like, what are the things that exist that we can play with already? And what can we do to add increased meaning and value, not just within the context of our story, our story here being Andor, but in, in the context of the thing, the story that we are responding to, which is Rogue One. And and I think particularly in light of K2 in this, or K, the K droids in this episode, the KX droids in this episode, uh, and, and in, in this episode in general, I think going back and watching Rogue One after this is actually going to be a really interesting experience because just this like 45 minute episode has added so much to the kind of underlying texture of Rogue One in in a way that to be honest I've kind of cynically been like 
no one could do this. There's no way a prequel made after the fact could in any way kind of influence my thinking around uh, a later, uh, a, a, well, an earlier slash later um, iteration of, of of that story. And and it turns out um, Andor, by doing these small and thoughtful touches, uh, like Paul Verhoeven's uh, Andor, a Star Wars story, uh, you can get a, a, a lot of success out of it. I know you're probably going to get a Manu watch rubs later in on this episode, <laughs> but here I can tell you to play Metal Gear Solid 3 and watch Better Call Saul. Yeah. Uh, two prequels, I think, do that uh, exquisitely well. Um, I mentioned just like the dramatic irony of like we know what a KX droid will mean to Cass at some point, but it's also the fact that they they have this character, or at least the droid, come on frame at the moment where Cassian needs help. Like, is like is this you know droid possibly going to come save the day? Um, and I also like that uh, the droid ends up choking Cass because mm-hmm. uh, the first time we see the uh, K2SO in Rogue One, he literally does a choke slam Undertaker <laughs> style on Jin as she tries to get out of the truck. So it just it's a way to it's it's a callback but it's not like a reference it's not or it there's a visual language they're using the same words in a way but like what they're doing is playing on audience expectations and then also setting up how fearsome these droids can be because we only know them really as k2so and he's like a lot of fun in rogue one he's a ton of fun Mm -hmm. um but when you actually are accosted with them as like a civilian and these are basically like Boston robotics like murder dogs um, they're fucking scary as hell yeah. and they really are able to play on your expectation of hope and then turn that around at you and show you oh no this is just fucking brutal yeah yeah and, and I also think you know uh, maybe this is just me being like oh hits bong says something insane but like I think there's also kind of by bringing the K droids in in this way and showing them as these murder machines, they're kind of riffing on this theme. Not kind of. They're definitely riffing on this theme that they that they've been slowly introducing over the past six episodes, which is this idea that like the empire or or the conditions in which we are raised and and live make us. Um, but that does not mean they have to unmake us. Um, so you know these K two droids or these K droids are are as we now see absolutely horrifying, like really fucking scary. And if I were a rebel on you know Yavin four and and just watching Cash and Andor carry like walk his fucking droid dog around, and his droid is literally a K droid, I I would be like upset and I would not be happy about having to see that because that is like a fucking drama machine. Um, but but yet we know that that K two is a part of the the rebellion and and we see what he is like in in Rogue One and see that there is not an inherent evilness to him even as a droid which is something that is literally programmed um, and 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 you know that means there has to have been this evolution and there has to have been this change and and it's and it means that even the literal kind of binary computer programming that decides what circuits fire when um, can still be overcome in the right hands and and in some ways I find this you know. Uh, there, there was this this interview that that Tony Gilroy did actually a couple weeks ago, and and one of the things that he said that kind of made me go, ooh, interesting, and maybe not in a good way, was he was like, you know we're not responding directly to current events, but it is relevant to current events. And I kind of always go back and forth on that because I feel like that's kind of the like, oh, I'm not political kind of answer to things. But I think he's actually really right because um, this 
And this kind of scene in particular really made me think about, you know, how Google Pixel right now or Google, whatever the Google phone is right now, is advertising this phone uh, where it can actually like take pictures of black people that doesn't leave them entirely in the dark because they've like unracisted uh, their cameras for the first time in 20 years. Um, and, and there is something sort of like... You know, I, I think a kind of easy route at looking at a story like that would be like all technology is evil um, and all cameras are necessarily evil and white supremacist. But the the argument that I think we're starting to see built up here in, in Andor, especially by the introduction of uh, the K-Droids, is, is that even things that seem um, like they don't have sort of moral nuance to them are still things that are made and molded by human beings and, and our kind of own moral and ideological whims. And, and because these things were made and molded by human beings, they can also be unmade and unmolded by human beings. And that is like lovely, whether it's, you know, the context of Cashin as as a sort of ex, you know, colonized, I guess, uh, uh, person, or whether it's Marva and whatever her relationship to the Confederation of Independent Systems is, or Mon Mothma, or any of these characters. Um, there is that that possibility of uh of becoming you know becoming what you were meant to be but becoming what you are not instructed to be and i think that is like really kind of getting to the the true core of of anti-imperialist rebellion in a phenomenal way yeah absolutely and i do like how uh the KX droids are going to, and with what K2SO is in Rogue One, it uh, speaks to some of the things that's happening elsewhere in the story, just like straight plot stuff in terms of rebels are trying to steal Imperial equipment. Um, we have uh, Deidre Miro specifically like, get me everything that's been stolen from an Imperial lot in the last whatever <laughs> years from all star systems. But I think it's also... There's a line from Luthen in this episode is that the Empire's been choking us, but they've been doing it so gradually we forgot to feel it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's something very powerful in this episode ending with uh, Kassa hanging there, like being choked to death and having to call for the cop to tell his droid to like back down or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think there's some very good thematic coherency going on in the show. Yeah. And I think the you know the line that line from Tony Gilroy in that interview in Scripps magazine I believe where he's like you know it's not about uh, current events but it, it very clearly relates to them like it's not corresponding but it is relevant and I think that is for me it, it is a it is a positive sort of side effect of having a very clear understanding of or or maybe not a, a perfect understanding but having a very confident understanding of how the world works i don't think this tv show could have been written with the degree of success that it has been if it were written by someone who hasn't thought about what the world actually means and what the world actually looks like and how the, you know, the various bits and pieces of the world fit together. Like, I think you could not write the show if you did not have some sort of semi-coherent ideology of, of your own. Um, and, and you know, I think we see that in The Rings of Power, where The Rings of Power loses its sort of narrative salience and and sort of connection to reality in a lot of ways, not in, not just canonical reality, but uh, the, the real world, uh, because the the guys who are writing it don't really have a clear sense of why why and how the world is. Uh, and, and I think it is not... Uh, going out too far on a limb to say that Tony Gower probably has a very clear understanding or a clear belief in how uh, 
how and why the world is structured the way that it is. And because that clear belief is there, he's able to write a story that is as massive as it is, because it really does encompass a huge number of characters when, when you get down to it and a huge number of plot lines. And he's able to do so with a sense of coherency and, and kind of clarity because he's not getting lost trying to figure out question the answers to questions that are raised by these various plot lines. He knows what the answers are. He just needs to work out how to, how to tell the story. And, and my God, he's doing that insanely successfully. Oh, absolutely. A little bit of a kind of similar, but not the same situation. I think about like the Simpsons writer's room of the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the common thing online is, oh, the Simpsons predicted that and the Simpsons predicted this and they were 20 years ahead of their time. And as someone who grew up in the 90s is like, no, what the Simpsons writers did is they had a very firm grasp of what like class politics were working, not just class politics, but all sorts of politics working through the 90s. And those symptoms have just gotten worse from the 90s to 2022. Um, they were telling something about the material reality at the time and it was mostly just a backdrop that's why you know homer has a huge house and a full family despite like being the biggest idiot in the world um you know people always bring that up on twitter these days so i had to vent about that (laughs) but it just like they were just very if you're finally attuned to the material conditions of the now just and it doesn't have to be the point even though i would say it is kind of the point of the show um then all that sort of stuff just kind of comes organically. And like you said, it's just how how Gilroy is going to portray, or he already knows the answers that his ideology would lead him to. It's just turning that into the story that we're seeing on screen, as opposed to Rings of Power, which you said, which clearly had no ideology besides make Amazon's billion-dollar Game of Thrones, yeah. and that absolutely shows in that production as well. Yeah. And you know what? I think this kind of comes to to a, a kind of, I guess, revelation I had when um, I was watching the episodes one through six again last night, as one does. Um, and and I, I think I'm kind of starting to, to come to terms with the fact that I think Star Wars is really at its best when it is looking mostly at poverty or at industrial realities instead of when it is looking up at wealth. Like, I, I think we have to kind of assume that there is this kind of a material average from which the like you know idealized star wars audience member looks at the world right and 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 that doesn't necessarily mean like middle class but it means that they that this person probably exists in the middle of they're not super wealthy and they're not super poor so they are either looking up at wealth or they are looking down at poverty and star wars i think always works best when it is looking down at poverty or looking into the the working class kind of edifices of of the galaxy. Like if you look at A New Hope and, you know, we can argue about whether or not Luke, by virtue of being a, a farmer, is petty bourgeois or not. Um, but Luke is not a rich kid uh, and and Han is not a rich kid. Um, and, and um, you know, Leia is rich, but she also immediately loses her home. So we never see that wealth in a, in a tangible way. And everything in Star Wars... Uh, looks so deeply connected to kind of the aesthetics of working class life. You know, they're junker cars. Everybody's wearing patched shit. It looks rough and tumble. Nobody's living a kind of life of ease and luxury. Um, and and obviously the original trilogy is the the, the most successful uh, of all the Star Wars movies so far. Um, and 
And then you look at things like, you know, the the Rebels book by a prequel book by John Jackson Miller, which is I which I would say is great, is really, really worth reading. It's definitely like Star Wars book level writing. So don't go in expecting Tolkien, but it is good <laughs> stuff. Um, that's called A New Dawn. Uh, and that's looking at, you know, the life of uh, Kanan Jarrus, Jedi uh, Knight, after the, the purge, after Order 66 and before he uh, teams up with the Rebels uh, in, in the, the titular Rebels and Rebels, uh, Star Wars Rebels, the TV show. Manu watch reps. Um, and and there, <laughs> there you know, Kanan is a minor and he's dealing with, you know, a lot of situations that are very, very obviously working class situations. He's a minor having to deal with like the, the kind of rough and tumble life uh, of poverty and alcoholism and drug use. And also, you know, the, the kind of ecological and environmental impacts of things like strip mining. And, and that's a really successful book. Rebels as a TV show uh, is, I think, probably one of the only shows uh, in recent memory for me that has dealt explicitly with the concept of industrial sabotage as a means of uh, ending an empire. Uh, they literally, the rebels literally organize a factory, a weapons factory, uh, to get them to stop making weapons. That's incredible. Um, and that's, again, Rebels is really successful. And then there's this. Um, and, and, and Andor is a show that is almost obsessed or is, or is purely grounded in these kind of working class uh, cultural kind of ticks. You know, whether it's the, the, the the guys who strip out the 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 uh, star destroyers on Ferrix or Cashin's whole life or whether it's the strip mining that we see uh, on Canari or all of the crew at, in Aldani, um, it is a very working class oriented kind of picture. And of course, Andor is deeply successful. And then you look at the things where the movies and the TV shows where Star Wars is looking up at wealth and. The sequel trilogy. The sequel trilogy does not, in any serious way, concern itself with the, the the machinations of poverty and and of not being part of the sort of like imperial bourgeois. You've got Leia and Luke, who are obviously at the upper echelon, even if they've now kind of been politically ostracized. Um, you know, Kylo Ren, literal prince, uh, literal Disney prince, um, and all of the planets that we see, besides a kind of uh, brief thank you to Jakku, uh, are are wealthy planets. They are planets with with significant amounts of wealth compared to the, the sort of galactic averages we're led to believe. And those, I think, aren't as successful as Star Wars stories because there's not really anything worth saying about the imperial bourgeoisie. Um, and and they haven't quite figured that out because none of them are ideological. I would even say, um, you know, Last Jedi, which I love, uh, and Ryan Johnson, who I immensely respect as a director, I would say the whole sequence with Canto Bite and the casino is really unsuccessful at getting across the class messages that that it's trying to, to purvey because it's looking at wealth you know, from below instead of looking into a, a sort of galactic working class. And and it's nice to see Andor kind of come back to those quote unquote roots, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know you mentioned the imperial uh, bourgeois, but also one thing this show has been doing well is showing the class within the empire as well, mm -hmm. um, both in like the Imperial Security Bureau, but also just down to uh, Cyril Karn, um, who is, you know, we see him return to his home after being fired from the Corpos a couple episodes ago. And he, what's it called? He lives in essentially what looks like public housing, almost brutalist architecture. And I say that with love. Um, but you see him go from like the CT stop or the public transit station and he has to literally go down several levels yeah. and if you look out and when he's sitting in his room looking out his window all he sees is other apartment buildings um there's barely any sunlight that makes it down and it's probably reflections off other people's apartment windows like higher up in the sky um so like they are 
very keenly aware of class at all times. Like it's not something to be observed when it's convenient for the story. It is something that's undergirding everything from the like strip mining town and Ferrix to every single member of the Imperial hierarchy, whether they're officially a imp or not. Um, we see it all. And we see a lot of, I mean, obviously the Mon Mothma stuff is going to be, you know, a lot of upper class stuff, but we also do see that like she has drivers, but those drivers are also like paid to be spies. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like that at no point do I think the detail of class is missing from any of this. No, totally. And and I think there's also kind of something really interesting because, um, you know, this show, I think more successfully than anything else, really shows the wealth of, even more so than the prequels, I think shows the wealth of the Empire. But it does it without, like, it does it with a reason. It's not just showing the wealth for the sake of showing opulence, like I think the prequels tend to to kind of get trapped into. And there's an intense loneliness and isolation for all of the wealthy people that we see on Coruscant. Um, either they are people who are pretending, like like Vel and, and like Clea, they are pretending to be part of the, uh, like, imperial bourgeoisie, but are not really. So they're kind of interlopers uh, and are therefore kind of isolated from it. Or um, it's Mon Mothma and Perrin Mothma, I guess that's a surname, fuck knows, uh, and their shithead daughter and all of the people around them at these parties who all seem intensely isolated from one another. And so in effect, even though there are, you know, family relationships, there, there are spouses and mothers and daughters and friends, old friends, they all have this equally isolated and equally distant sort of effectively a business relationship. It's all transactional for them. And it doesn't matter whether it's a relationship that's based off of, you know, love and and familial connections or a business relationship between bankers and their clients. It's all transactional. And that I think is such an amazing contrast. It is is so successful in in its execution because of the contrast between like the folks that we see on Ferrex. Um you know, we see so many different types of of deeply intimate relationships that that kind of go beyond the standard, you know, relationships that we usually get. Like, yes, there's the kind of will they, won't they of of Cashin and Bix, and like that's fine. And then there's the relationship between Bix and Tim. Uh, fuck that dude, glad he's dead. Um, and there's you know the in, a deeply in, intense and emotionally affecting, and I'm not gonna cry on air. Uh, relationship between um, Marva and Cashin. But then there's also you know the one that I think is the most impressive is the guy who runs that that tinkering shop, the repair shop on Ferrix, whose name I can't remember, and um, who come him and his son come running to get Bix after she's been hung, uh, like, like chained up, uh, when, when Tim is shot and, you know, they immediately come get her and, and there's no implication that there's anything sexual or familial or even like friendship based. It is a, it is the most kind of pure elaborate, like enunciation of a, of a, uh, of comradeship um, that I think I've ever seen in TV. And it's, you know, these people are comrades. They trust each other with each other's lives. Um, they trust each other implicitly. They always have each other's back, but there's nothing more to it. They don't need to be best friends. They don't need to know everything about each other's inner lives. They don't need to be related to each other by blood or likely to fall into bed with one another. They are people who are, you know, brought together based off of a shared commitment to something deeper. And that's enough. And that is such a, a phenomenal way of kind of building out the like emotional diversity of life outside of the imperial bourgeoisie compared to the emotional stunted and and kind of regressiveness of life in the imperial bourgeois oh yeah um if you don't mind i want to jump into the marva fiona shaw appreciation time now are you ready to get emotional yeah Um, i feel like you were just ready to skim on the surface so uh 
Honestly, though, Fiona Shaw, her performance as Marva Andor made me cry this episode, yeah. uh, specifically her second scene uh, in which the first scene Andor says, hey, I got money. We're going to bounce from here. And then uh, he comes back to get her a little bit later on. And then she just refuses to leave Ferrix, which first just got me kind of emotional in the same way the previous episodes had, just because it was so well written. Um, but then she starts orating about the rebellion, about how it's damn time. She may be old, but she doesn't care. And I was just like, I was like tears welling up at this point. Yeah. The fight is here. So she will be. And this was the place her husband was murdered as we, we kind of knew from previous episodes, but they really dotted the eyes in that sense. Uh, this episode. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is the other thing is, right. So by having her take this line in the sand where, where she before cash and before our literal hero and protagonist is like, no, I'm staying here for the rebellion. I am going to do my part for the rebellion. She is the first kind of hero stance that we see of the people in, uh, in Ferrex or the people in, in Cashin's immediate orbit. She is the bigger hero than Cashin right now. And she's doing it by staying local, which means this show is taking a, p a position, a principled position that it is better to be the person who stays home and organizes than it is to go out and hunt your glory. And and given that the basis of this show is literally Star Wars, is literally the, the, the franchise that gave us Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, what an enormously refreshing thing to say. The, 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 the actual rebellion starts at home and the actual rebellion is, is full of effectively faceless people doing the right thing because they know it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and it's encapsulated by this perfect line where um, Andor says, uh, you're not going to be able to beat them. And then Marva just says, not if I keep running away or something along those lines. Like, it is very clear. Like, you'll get shot in the back uh, if that's what happens. Uh, so I really like... Um like that specific bit of dialogue. Um, and then the way she was orating about the rebellion, the way she talked about the Aldani heist as heroes brave enough to take on an Imperial garrison, which, you know, obviously Andor's not admitting the truth, um, but it's just like the way she's phrasing that, like that makes me want to go and enlist with the rebellion, um, you know, because there are other people who are brave enough to fight. Um, but I think what really like turned it for me is when the political became personal, um, and this is like when the tears that were welling in my eyes really started to flow. Uh, Cassian's like, well, I got to go, but it would ruin me because I would worry about you too much. He wouldn't know peace. And then she just responds, that's just love. Nothing you can do about that. I've never loved anything more than I loved you. And, you know, you've been like my greatest pleasure, but he has to go and she has to stay and she doesn't begrudge him for that one bit. Yeah. Oh, God, it's so awful to to watch because it's so brilliantly done and it's and it gets it sorry i really am trying to keep it together and um, it gets at this thing that i that i kind of always like which is that um love is both like a selfish and selfless thing and i think she's really doing the kind of incredible thing that you don't often see which is she's articulating both sides of it at once um which is that you know there is this kind of desire um, to to have the things that you love and to keep them close, uh, no matter what it takes and no matter how dangerous it is. Um, and you have to also kind of balance that, um, sometimes precariously against the reality that the things that we love, the people that we love are autonomous human beings and and or autonomous beings and, and are um, not beholden to our every whim. And and there's this kind of like sort of almost violent feeling to it because, because it is painful to realize that that love is going to hurt you. Um, and it is painful to realize that even though love is going to hurt you in these ways, it's still 
a good thing. It is still a good thing to love and it's still a wonderfully like motivating thing. And 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 this this kind of sense that like um well, you, you know, I think a lesser show, I really think a lesser show would have had Marva's lines delivered by a, a love interest for Cashin. I think a lesser show would have had, I've never loved anything more than I loved you, said by a, a woman probably five to ten years younger than Diego Luna is uh, to Cashin Andor, and then she would have died. Um, and I think this show having having the kind of most intense form of love that it has displayed so far be, be the love between a mother and son um and and an older mother and her adult son is is remarkable it just fucking rocks yeah it is like so good and i love the last shot of her in the sequence is her picking up her walking (laughs) stick and her rifle and just like slowly making her way back to the window like uh she's she knows what she's about and i i just really love it um and even if she has to stand on one stick um to fire the rifle um she's gonna do it and i really love that for her yeah uh, while we're here, we might as well talk about some of the flashbacks we get, um, which is not um, a device they've used since the first three episodes when we saw the Canari flashbacks. Uh, basically, as Andor is like walking back from Bix's back to Marva's, um, a couple of stormtroopers are marching through the streets of Ferrix, and the foley of their boots crunching cuts us back to when... Uh, Clem, the original Clem, the one that Andor fashioned his name on Aldani after, uh, Marva's husband, uh, was basically shot by a firing line in the street, not as part of a public execution, but as the Imperial garrison was rolling in, I think about 13 years prior, mm-hmm. uh, they, um, some people, some locals were just not happy to see stormtroopers, which, you know, who's happy to see fascists? And he, Clem was basically just trying to corral the kids, but all we see is that as soon as the like ruckus was noticed by the imperial officer he just ordered the people to fire on clem and probably the other people yeah. um or at least that's what we're led to believe it did cut away so maybe something else happened yeah um, but that's at least the interpretation we're meant to roll with yeah and, and it also does this again that the show every single thing the show does is so purposeful and it's always hammering back its kind of core themes but but the show is making the argument that it doesn't matter how malleable you make yourself to the empire uh the um, uh, empires will necessarily inflict violence upon you and it doesn't matter if you're the peacekeeper or you're the rebel they will come for you regardless of what you do. And so trying to uh, sort of, not to say that Clem was in the wrong, but trying to enforce civility or pacifism um, in the face of, uh, in in the face of this kind of all-encompassing evil, um, no matter how well-intentioned, will get you the same outcome as if you raise a gun to to the stormtrooper. I'm desperately trying not to say cop here so I don't get deported. Um, and, and, And the show is basically asking the question, by presenting these kind of two options. Do you want to die while holding a flower or do you want to die with a gun in your hand? Um, and, and I, and I think based on the fact that they are using Clem in particular to, to, to preach one half of this narrative, I don't think they're necessarily passing a moral judgment on either side per se, but I think they are making it clear that the, the, an em, the empires are meat grinders and the meat grinder will come for all of us, but you have to decide for yourself what you want your approach to it to be to be and and i think uh framing it like they have here with cashin at this kind of moment of questioning for for himself uh, and having clem there means well we know what route cashin takes even though it feels a bit icky now um but it means that our hero is going to take the, the opposite approach and, and our hero is quite literally gonna die with a gun in his hand 
Yeah. And just another thing where it's just like the production here is very thoughtful. I appreciate that they didn't really show us uh, Clem hanging yeah. um, because there is all sorts of imagery that goes with showing a black man being hanged on television. Yeah. Um, we just see his boots. But like the story lets us fill in the rest without you know, dipping into exploitive imagery, which I just really appreciate. That just, it's another one of those things that just makes me think everyone who's working on this show is thinking about every last thing that's going on to screen. Yeah. And, and um, I think it's also like such a good kind of, um, you know, I, I think this is the best show on TV right now. Like, and I think it's probably one of my favorite shows of all time. I don't think there's really anything that comes close to me in terms of the the kind of average quality of each episode of this show. Um, if, uh, if a TV show like Andor um, can, can convey its message uh, without needing to go towards the egregiously sort of violent and, and the kind of um, gratuitous, uh, needlessly gratuitous, um, and while also being aware of what the sort of uh, real world <laughs> realities of these images are then every other show should be able to do this every other show should be able to do this and and i think like it, it means that the, the bar has kind of been set and i'm going to be massively less impressed with things like like uh the rings of power or whatever the next stupid ass star wars show is when they don't meet the standard because it's clear from this that it is possible yeah absolutely um like I said, I can't say it's the best thing I've seen this year just because Better Call Saul, um, I think, was immaculate. But like this is up there, uh, like almost instantaneously with my favorite television shows, like without a doubt, easily anything that's made under the Disney umbrella, Marvel, Star Wars. This is at least three times as good as whatever the next closest thing is, yeah. Mando season one or whatever. Um like, I get annoyed when people try to stick Marvel stuff into, like, prestige award categories and stuff, but this belongs. Yeah, yeah. This absolutely belongs as this is real television. It's just on a Star Wars canvas yeah. as opposed to this is a Star Wars show, yeah. um, which is what Boba Fett and even Mando, which I mostly like, ends up being. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think this gets, uh, well, it's a stupid little throwaway point, but I'm planting my flag in this now. This show needs at least one Emmy. Um, and it's not just because I'm a stupid Star Wars fan and it's not just because I'm like territorial. This show at minimum deserves an Emmy. I don't necessarily think any one element of the production, maybe the score deserves an Emmy on its own. But I think as a whole, as cumulative whole, this show should be an Emmy award winning show. Uh, and if uh, come Emmy season, it does not get one, then uh, I'm going to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah absolutely um let's round out with just talking about cassian a little bit what else he does in this episode because he actually takes a back seat for much of the first half i clock this he doesn't show up till the 17 minute mark nice uh 17 11 to be exact so he spends more than a third of the episode or more than a third of the episode passes before he even shows up um i think the stuff we we've already kind of talked about all the marva stuff um we, he does uh you know reach out to Bix again. And Bix is just really not that thrilled to see him. I think she's still pissed at him for everything mm. um, for Tim. And because of the situation Tim was put in, um, I did clock that Tim's last name is Carlo, yeah. um, which makes me think of Carlo Rizzi, yep. who is um, the husband of Connie uh, Corleone in the Godfather movie. And he is someone who kind of rats out Sonny Corleone and leads to his death um, and leads to a whole basically mafia war. And I can see the parallels where uh, Tim's definitely far more sympathetic, but it is a situation where he went outside of the family, quote unquote, um, and it led to just horror for everyone. So I really liked, I don't know if that's intentional, but that's just something my brain instantly clocked. Yeah. 
Um, it's also, uh, sorry, this is, that was not where I, I haven't seen The Godfather, so I was not going to make that connection. Um, I was thinking you were referring there to Carlo Rizzo, the, the Italian actor, who's in, who's in a whole bunch of movies, but my favorite of which is, uh, Roman Holiday starring, uh, uh Audrey Hepburn and, and <laughs> Gregory Peck. Uh, so that was me, uh, needlessly revealing how un, unversed I am in good, good cinema. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I also put Carlo Rizzo in the outline where it should have been Carlo Rizzi for the Godfather. So that one's on me. I apologize <laughs> for that. Um, I didn't have too many notes on the big stuff. I know something we talked about with our friend Maddie is the fact that we don't like, or we do like the fact that this didn't just fall into kind of a romance plot. Yeah. Um, just making Bix a romantic partner, especially especially in a situation where they just killed the ex-boyfriend. Yeah. It's like, well, he's dead, so now you can come back to me. Like, a lesser show would do that, but did you have any specific thoughts on the conversation with Bix? Um, I, well, like, I, I, I kind of struggle because I think she's a really, really well-written and interesting character. Um, uh, but I'm also kind of like it's really nice to see like she is like effectively Takashin fuck off not happening tonight I'm mad at you still and and it is nice to see that he basically goes yeah fair enough uh, and does leave um, and like it's not to be like oh hashtag male ally but again the show treats it's it treats women with respect uh, and I think particularly given uh, the context of the last major show <laughs> I watched just rings of power, which like uses basically every possible opportunity to introduce misogyny that was not otherwise there into, into the kind of script. It's nice to see a moment where these guys have gone, okay, this is a galaxy far, far away. Uh, it's a fantasy universe. What can we do with this? Well, what we can do with this is we cannot treat women like shit. Uh, and, and they don't even need to comment on it. They don't need to turn, you know, cash it into some kind of like fucking quotable, gifable figure as like, oh, he's a male ally. They're not doing any branding off of this. Nobody sh like shined a spotlight on it. It was just a moment where he listened to what a woman said and went with it. And and I think the the kind of mundanity of that uh, was its 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 big success there. I think. Uh, near the end of the episode, we get some cool synth music <laughs> and a like Jurassic Park style bird shot that leads us to uh, Space Cancun or Space Miami, whichever. Um, <laughs> take your pick there does appear to be some time passage because we catch up with andor in a shower which i will definitely give emily some time to talk about uh shirtless diego luna um, he is currently going under the name of keith kurgo but my question for you is um with the woman he's staying with here they talk about revnog and pizos and i have a question is pizos space pizza i god i hope so because i really did not know what the hell else it could have been i really I could have like googled this at any point uh, in the 24 hours it's been since this episode came out but I like the idea that they're just talking about like rum and pizza because that's a very nice like quotidian kind of conversation and I think they all deserve that you watch it's gonna be something like it's gonna be crack cocaine and they're like they're smoking crack or whatever which is totally valid and fine um but I hope it is pizza that's nicer <laughs> yeah okay but um I guess yeah, we get to see Diego Luna showering here. Yes. Um, and it is kind of a fake shower, but also includes a shower beer. So he's really like multitasking here in the shower. Um, he's basically using the shower as cover to, um, you know, make some artificial noise so he can go through his stuff, through his money, so he can kind of like get himself ready for the day, essentially. Oh, I um, did not clock which, that that's what that was. 
Yeah, it's, it's a little bit. I did think he did get a little bit of a shower in there, and then he's taking sips from his flask, his whiskey nog, I assume they would call it in this world. Um, but uh, do you want to get any thirst out here? I know this entire project is a thirst project for you, but if there's anything specifically you want to say about Diego Luna, here's your chance. I What we should actually do is just get like a 20-second sound effect of uh, me being bleeped out. Um because nothing I could say is appropriate for the airwaves. Um, however, I do think this is kind of funny in, in a totally non-intellectual sense, but I felt like the show was like giving me everything I could have possibly wanted out of a Star Wars. And then they were like, make that man take his top off. And and then I was like, wow, this really is 100% perfect. I've never seen a show get uh, A plus on everything in the way that this show has. So Tony Gilray, if you've been listening to my prayers for the last uh, six years, however many years, six years, thank you for that. You are a trooper. <laughs> Uh, we talked about the KX droids a little bit, but also while walking along the beach and or see some probe droids like that we would most be familiar with from the beginning of The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Um, those were a fun little visual. And it essentially, like stormtroopers obviously have this fascist feel, but the probe droids almost feel like, if not predator drones, at least surveillance drones. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's adding like a full like layer of surveillance on top of just the military might that's being waged here, which I enjoyed. Yeah. Um, but the dust up he gets into with the Imperial shore trooper. It's very much just like every interaction with a cop that's ever gone wrong ever. Um, It's literally the, and or looked at a trooper wrong and he was just in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. The cop's like, are you a part of it? He won't even say what it is. He, yeah. I mean, it's assumed, but it's just like, that's what cops do. Yeah. Are you a part of it? Just some nebulous crime thingy. Um, and it is great that just no matter what Andor says, it's the wrong answer. And it just confirms the cop's biases that this person's dangerous and needs to be thrown in a cage or shot or something like that. Yeah, because all cops are morons. Um, and, yes. and, and like, I think there's also kind of the like angry belligerence of it as well, which is like, um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this planet probably didn't start an Imperial shithole. Um, but it's certainly on its well on its way to becoming an Imperial shithole, making these shore troopers, uh, colonizers, like they are, they are, they are an outside invading force there. Um, and they, they have come to, uh, fuck up an environment that was otherwise good. You know what? We've made comparisons to Miami and Cancun, but I'm actually wondering if it's a little bit, mm, Okay, mm, I'll, yeah, I'll say it. I wonder if it's a little bit kind of Israel in a way. Uh, I don't want to get oh. into that too much, but it did kind of have the feeling of half European, kind of half, uh, half kind of the uh, Middle Eastern in a way, uh, that beach. And, and it, like I was thinking Tanger, Tangiers in, in Morocco, which is kind of the beach I'm most familiar with in life. Uh, but I think, I wonder if it's maybe in Israel. Anyways, fine. I'm not going to get myself in trouble. Um, but there's this sort of element of the, the troopers are an invading force. Uh, and yet they are both um, totally incapable of communicating in a way that is uh, non-aggressive and also belligerently fucking stupid. Like, the, like and it's just classic cops. It's just classic traffic cops where like you get pulled over and you see a dude who obviously has no brain activity behind his eyes and because like the the way that the state particularly in the u.s works it's all about convincing cops that they are somehow this like oppressed uh like minority righteous good uh who who all of the people around them are just trying to kill them because they're simply too good to exist even though these guys are all fucking 
whatever i'm not gonna get myself in trouble but like there is this innate belligerence that does not de-escalate any circumstances does not make it make anything better ever um and it's coupled with the fact that they are legitimately an invading force and also deeply fucking stupid and it was so funny to see that show up in in a star wars where it's not even like comical like oh the stormtrooper hitting his head or the stormtrooper easily getting distracted by obi-wan kenobi's jedi mind tricks it's no no this guy is belligerently stupid almost comically stupid except it's not comical because he's holding Cashin's life in his fingers. Oh, yeah. Um, I love what you were saying about how there's like nothing going on behind the eyes or whatever. Like this is an effective place for them to start dropping the stormtrooper imagery. I know it's a shore trooper or whatever, but now it's just a cop. It's uh, we've had a lot of interiority with the imps and the fascists and the corpos up to this point, and it really helped. But here the guy doesn't matter because it could have been any number of cops, uh, any you p- pick out any stormtrooper out of a hat and they would have all behaved the same way. So using that kind of like, uh, whatever that imagery is where everyone just basically looks the same actually works here. And it's very effective how they brought in some of that star Wars imagery. Um, and that leads us into like the kangaroo court trial that Andor has to go through. Um, it's just a very indifferent judge and judicial process. The emperor says everyone goes to jail. So everyone goes to jail. And if you even dare to speak up at your trial, you are going to be charged with resisting judgment. Yeah. Um, uh, or do you have anything you want to get in first? Yeah. So, so when um, migrants, particularly migrant children, are detained at the U.S. border, um, the fucking insane U.S. border that, by the way, I should mention, Joe Biden has actually expanded the border wall, Trump's border wall, and completed it. Thanks, Joe Biden. So glad we all voted Democrat. Um, anyways, when, when these kids, these people under the age of 18, children, literal, legal and literal children, are detained, um, they are thrown up in front of immigration courts where they get like at most a minute before a judge before they are deemed guilty and deported back to wherever it is that they came from that they didn't leave for shits and giggles they probably left for a good fucking reason not even probably they did leave for a good fucking reason because nobody picks up and leaves for fun as all of the americans who never left the u.s under trump should understand perfectly well it's a very big decision to get up and leave a country and you don't do it lightly anyways all of these kids from age three to age 17 uh, get an average of like 90 seconds before for a U.S. immigration judge before they are all uniformly without, like, without variation, all deemed guilty and deported. Um, And it was really interesting seeing them use that same kind of setup, this like mass trial kind of setup in in this TV show, not just because it's almost kind of comical, um, but because it combines a lot of really interesting elements um, of of this show and a lot of the things that I think they've handled quite deftly so far, but are now dealing with a lot more explicitly. Um, one of which is is the fact that Diego Luna is Mexican, um, and it was it was one of the kind of really impressive things about Rogue One is that they didn't. Uh, try and like hide his accent. They didn't try and make him sound like everybody else. They didn't pad it out with a whole bunch of other people who spoke with his accent. They let him stick out. And they they then in the, the sort of canon surrounding that made something of that. And Tony Gilroy has also acknowledged in quite a few interviews that he's been interested in making something of that uh, in this show in particular. And I think he's really starting to do it very well with this, which is which is saying, hey, look, this is there's there's you know this this accent sounds distinct in Star Wars, but there's also a very real political situation that goes alongside of it. Um, and I would also recommend Diego Luna's TV show uh, where he basically talks uh, you know talks politics with a whole range of mostly left wing thank you King uh, uh, figures, including things like racism, uh, immigration, abortion. It's it's quite well handled for a bunch of celebrities. Um, and uh, you know to see the show 
acknowledge that reality in a way that is slightly comical to show the farcical side of the American empire, but also galling because this is our protagonist and fuck knows how he's going to get out of his six year uh, sentence. Like, like this is smart screenwriting. This is smart and aware screenwriting and it's earnest and it, and it's good and it's not trying to hide from anything and it's not trying to be not political, but it's also doing things that are overtly political in service of a very good story. And, and it's like one of these scenes where I'm like, God, these guys are so good. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me is his uh, plea that he's just a tourist. He's just a tourist. Uh, just because, and I'm going to make a pretty insane comparison here, um, but it reminded me of a season two episode of Parks and Recreation, <laughs> of all things. Um, there's a scene where Leslie Nope, let's just call her the Mon Mothma of Pawnee, <laughs> um, Pawnee, Indiana, um, is she's been dating uh, this guy played by Justin Thoreau for a while. And this guy, Justin, has like all the best stories in the world. He's like, eaten with Sherpas up in the Himalayas and like scuba dived in Mariana Shrett, yada, yada, yada. Um, and Leslie can't figure out why she doesn't really, really love him. She just kind of likes him. And Ron Swanson uh, basically comes and it's because he's a tourist. He, you know, goes to other, goes into other people's lives. He takes a bunch of pictures. He makes some friends and then he leaves and then he never comes back. Yeah. Um, so he's just a tourist. And I feel like that's a little bit what Andor is because yep. you see what like he left Canary and he doesn't know what happened to his sister or any of his friends. He left Ferrix and that place just went to utter shit. Shit. Um, and now after the Aldani heist, we see all the people that survived that, like Val, like Sinta, and even to some extent Luthen, they're all left trying to pick up the pieces. Um, he is someone who goes to places, meets some people, and disappears, and that's literally what Bix accuses him of. So it just really like stuck out to me that that just a tourist thing is not just him, like his cover story, but could honestly just describe kind of his MO, the way he operates with other people in other places. Yeah. Um, and and this actually segues quite nicely into something that I've been wanting to talk about because it's so fucking bad shit. I'm delighted by it. Um, but a friend of the pod, Grant, pointed out yesterday, while I was still waiting to watch the episode as well, which was one of the cruelest strokes I've ever seen anyone uh, it, like accidentally pull on me, um, which was saying, pointing out that this episode has a lot of similarities to Albert Camus' The Stranger. Um, and in summation, for all of the people who weren't like me forced to read it in uh, high school <laughs> French class, um, The Stranger concerns a French-Algerian man, Marceau, uh, who is uh, l like literally the, the kind of embodiment of existentialism and nihilism. He is a man who feels disconnected. You know, the, the, the book famously starts out with like, today, mama died, uh, and he feels nothing about the death of his mother. Um, he has this kind of uh, what should be a rollicking kind of affair with this beautiful woman, and he really doesn't feel anything ab about that either. Um, he doesn't feel anything about the kind of rapidly um, uh, hotting up situation in, in Algeria where he lives, uh, of course, kind of at the precipice of the the, the French and Algerian War, the, the Algerian War of Independence. Um, and then he kills an Algerian man and also doesn't feel anything. Um, and, and when he does shoot this man to death, uh, all he can think about is is the how unhappy it is it's going to make him um, and how, you know, how hot the sun is on him and how upset he is because, oh, he, now he's going to have to deal with the consequences of killing this man. And and he never actually feels any sort of grief or, or sort of... Uh, Aware, or shows any awareness of the humanity of the people around him until the very famous end where, of course, he is uh, sentenced to death. Uh, and and then he realizes and, and is right as he's about this. I think it's like literally like the sun is dawning on the day that he's going to be hanged. And he starts to realize, oh, shit, I've wasted my whole life trying not to feel anything. 
And of course, that was famously spoofed in the Seinfeld finale, and everyone hated it. I still maintain it was a good episode. Um, but but I think we're kind of working up to this element here of of Cash and as Merceau, and he is this guy who, like, you know, he will occasionally make gestures towards being like, well, I do care. You know, him and Nemec kind of going at it um, in on Aldani, where Nemec is like, well, why don't you care? Why don't you care about these things? How are you content to, you know, it's the echo of the Jin and Saw thing, where Saw is like, um, how can you live knowing that the empire the the flag of the empire flies across the galaxy and jen answers it's not a problem if you don't look up nemic kind of pauses posits the same question to cashin and cashin's cashin's answer i think quite poignantly is not it's not a problem if you don't look up it's do i look like someone who doesn't care and and the answer is meant to implicitly be well no he doesn't look like someone who doesn't care but he also doesn't act like someone who cares um and we're now starting to kind of zero in on that um that contradiction that that's kind of fueling cash in right now where he wants to be the tourist he wants to be the guy who can bounce in and out without any sincere emotional connections to the thing that's happening around him but he is also at his core someone who does care about this stuff and now he's having being forced in a very uncomfortable way to make the choice between caring or not caring and i think we as the audience have to hope he makes that call before he shoots someone dead and doesn't realize what he's actually done uh and and you know i think we do know where that's going because we know rogue one exists but but they've done a really masterful job at, at making us wonder if he will actually get there in the end. Yeah, I think that's why I specifically liked Marva calling the heroes who took on the Imperial garrison, because you got to imagine that makes Andor think a little bit yep. at some level, um, even though he's kind of like reluctant to call it heroism in the moment. I also just think about Skeen a couple episodes ago when Andor's like, I just want to win and walk away. And Skeen just smiles at him and is like, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Like, and I think the whole point is that he really can't. Yeah. Um, this is probably a good time for us to hop over to the Imperial side of things. Um, who are all, yeah, honestly, like, woohoo is right. Uh, I can't believe that the thing I look most forward to every week now is when I get to see these white suited fascists come yeah. on my screen because I know I'm going to get some of the best television that's going around right now. Um, so basically, we get our first real glup shitto of the series. <laughs> um, we get Wolf Euleren, who is a zero dialogue actor from A New Hope or a zero dialogue character from A New Hope. He was just in that uh, circle of governors that Tarkin and Vader meet with early on. Um, I do believe he's popped up in Rebels and some other stuff, which uh, Emily can maybe get us in yeah. uh, if she feels like it's important, I guess. It, it, uh, but it, really, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's not important, but he's quite fun because his voice actor uh, and his voice actor, Tom Kane, actually uh, retired recently from voice acting because he had a stroke, which was very, very sad. Um, but if you've ever seen an episode of uh, The Clone Wars and you've heard that old timey World War II announcer voice, um, you know, battles on. On Geonosis, uh, Anakin and Padme have to f uh, race against time to get to the answer before uh, before some Obi Wan Kenobi is killed, and it's that great kind of old timey uh, newsreel announcer. That's Tom Kane, uh, and Wolf Yularen does show up uh, a couple times uh, throughout the Clone Wars as a as a uh, Republic commander. And again, it is very kind of essence of Glup Shido. He's not really someone who actually narratively matters, um, but he is this kind of emblematic um, dude who's so fucking boring. He fits perfectly into the imperial bureaucracy and has been able to make the trans transition between republic 
army commander to imperial army commander with no additional effort or thought, which is, of course, true of most of these army guys, whether it is the guys uh, who were in the Third Reich, uh, who seamlessly slotted back into uh, the the German chain of command in both, well, the French and German chain of command in both the East and West, or the, or the Nazi scientists who slotted firmly into uh, the U.S. Uh, scientific communities um, after the fact. There is this kind of uh, if you were a boring enough looking guy and a boring enough personality, you can go from doing heinous acts of evil to doing very different heinous acts of evil and no one will really pay attention or care. <laughs> yeah. And to be clear, he wasn't a glup shit out to me. Like, I didn't know this was a guy until I started talking about it with people after the episode because I haven't seen Clone Wars. So he is just one of the nameless guys in A New Hope. But I immediately knew his deal because um, Major... Partagas, who's played by Anton Lesser, Kyburn from Game of Thrones, for the first time, he's seated at that round table and he is listening to this guy. So it's just like immediately by everything we knew about Partagas, the fact that he's sitting, he's not leading this discussion, it tells me all I really need to know about this guy that they're introducing, probably just for the one scene. Maybe he'll come back later on. Um, but even if it's just for this one scene, it was very effective because I was immediately able to place him in a hierarchy and why he matters in context with the characters we already know. Yeah. And, um, and I think there's also this, like, you are right, the, the kind of blocking of this is, is absolutely crucial to getting the point across of, like, how the hierarchy functions without literally having to say anything. Um, but there's also something really interesting in that the imperial scenes, um, and mostly done in this amazing boardroom, um, the camera itself becomes very smooth. It becomes a, a kind of perfectly tracked camera. Um, there's no shaky cam. Um, it... it I guess the better way to build up this contrast is if you watch what the camera is doing when we're not in Imperial world, um, it's shaking, it, not super badly shaking, but it is shaking. It's moving around. The camera itself almost feels like an active participant in the scene. You can feel the camera moving to and fro on scenes as if it is a human being trying to actually see and get a grasp on the action. Um, it's not just Dutch angles all the time. You can We get you know shots that are above or below uh, actors or from the side to kind of, well, you know, it's, it's a camera doing what a camera really should be doing. Doing, uh, in in uh, a creatively interesting and visually interesting uh, TV show or movie, um, and when we move to the, uh, the the world of the Imperials, um, the camera becomes very static and it becomes very kind of cut and dry. It's it's still technically competent, but it's it's boring and it's almost like rather than being an active participant in in the scene, the camera is now stepping back because it's out of place and it realizes that anything that isn't a perfectly tracked shot or, or camera bit of camera choreography will will kind of key it out, will point itself out as as a as a rebel sort of interloper, uh, as a rebel spy. And I think that using that camera to kind of convey uh, a, a whole different kind of set of language and emotions and, and kind of atmosphere is not just like filmmaking 101, but it is filmmaking 101 that we've been missing for such a long time. And they really use it to, to massive effect, huh, mass effect uh, here in, <laughs> in this TV show, and um, particularly with the imps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the standout performances this episode was Denise Gao or yeah. Denise Go. I don't know how to pronounce her name. She is playing Deidre Miro, who is like the one young woman who is on this Imperial security board. Um, and like, I think it's very deliberate because they, you know, to emphasize the character that while, uh, Eulerin is starting to orate and giving his speech. It's intercut with Deidre getting all proper and dressed up for um, this meeting, yeah. even though she's in attendance from the beginning. She doesn't walk in late, but they are just showing that, um, you know, she's like, 
properly, making sure her collar is set, her boots are on. Um, she, they are showing that she is like, this is her getting ready for her stage. Like she is getting ready to start to perform, um, which I really like uh, because she's not happy with essentially Space Patriot Act, yeah. um, which Emperor Palpatine is passing. They call it POURD. <laughs> I think it's like Public Order Resentencing Directive. Um, and basically it is the Patriot Act. It basically just lifts all like bureaucratic jurisdictional boundaries between different groups, different peoples. Um, it's instituting mass surveillance and harsher prison sentences. Um, but she's like, I think this is exactly what the rebels want us to do, which I think later on Luthen actually confirms for us is like, we want them to tighten their grip because someone once said more star systems will slip through their fingers. <laughs> um, they, cause at a certain point, empire, no matter how big, will start to get spread too thin. Um, and like, if you can like create an overreaction to something, it does possibly open up weaknesses. That's kind of how I'm interpreting how Deidre is thinking about this here. Yeah. Is like, I think we're opening ourselves, or rather, they will know our playbook, which gives them a tactical advantage with their next move. Yeah. I think the other thing is it's doing a really good job at pointing out that like she is obviously the smartest person in, in any room she walks into. She's obviously incredibly talented. Um, and and yet this fact that, you know, and yet in spite of the fact that she is the cleverest and smartest person in any room she walks into, she's still fucking evil. Um, and her 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 cleverness and her her like awareness and her knowledge of what is actually happening does not prevent her from being politically, ideologically and politically like depraved. And, and I think it is such like a nice undercutting of sort of technocracy as a concept. Um, and it's also a really good way of being like uh, the kind of thesis that all Star Wars fans have had for a long time, which is that the Empire dumb as shit. And the only reason the Rebels succeed is by being like not quite as stupid as the Empire, which is, of course, why Thrawn as a character uh, is so successful in, in Rebs and the auxiliary material. And she is, again, proving this point of evil is evil and it doesn't matter uh, how smart or how stupid you are. It, evil is still there and its own it's its own kind of separate thing. And just being smart won't get you out of it. And all and all the same, I wouldn't say I'm like rooting for her. Yeah. But in like these like little scenes against other Imperials, I kind of am. Yeah. And I I'm actually not like I don't really view art as necessarily rooting for people. But it is like yeah, when she gets her big win, when Kyburn says I appreciate your endeavor, like, and she's like, oh shit, like I actually did something good. Yeah. Um, like, like I actually felt just a little bit of rush, and something I'll feel a little bit more when we start talking about Mon Mothma because she's not this far down the imperial you know fascist hole yeah. um but i just really really like that they, they've made a real character out of her yeah. um out of several of these imps and i think that's maybe the show's greatest strength um i think major uh part of Gaz remains my favorite character on the show um which again my favorite character from the star wars movies in terms of performance is uh tarkin mm. so maybe i have an issue with <laughs> like lusting over like old imperial brits um <laughs> But uh, what's it called? Anton Lesser just brings this stately, bureaucratic, fascist, like this quiet but pointed demeanor to him. And he's playing his own people off each other. Like he's watching Blevins and Miro like go at it. He's even like, is this the appropriate forum for this? And when <laughs> Blevins says, I think it is, he's like, yeah, sure. Let these two people, the two people of marginalized identity, crawl each other 
crawl over each other to make it out of a hole, which yeah. is exactly the analogy that Skeen and Cass talked about last time out. And it definitely sticks out because, as you said in a previous episode, if you look around, the other inter- Imperial officers are generally older and male. So even if race and gender aren't explicit vectors of oppression in this room, um, the, the thoughtful casting and the attention to detail is allowing that subtext to be used in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I actually wasn't going to do this, but I have no self-control, so I am. Um, I really hate this turn towards casting Black Imperials in in, in Star Wars. Um, I think it's all right that they've done it the way that they're handling it here. Like, I think that's actually quite a thoughtful way of doing it. I really hate it everywhere else. And, and I know I always get tend to get shit from Star Wars fans off of it on the basis of, oh, well, race doesn't exist in Star Wars, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but race exists in our world. <laughs> like, and people who, like, are racist, who are watching Star Wars, don't sit down to watch Star Wars and suddenly stop being a racist for 90 minutes, the 90 minutes that they're watching Star Wars. They're still racist. We still bring our own presuppositions about the world into the things that we watch. And I think this whole kind of ridiculous obsession with like casting black Imperials or casting like, um, well, it's mostly black people they cast in in the Empire, which I just think is its own kind of unsavory thing in, in, in its own way. And um, I think it's such like a kind of, um, it is the height of, of liberal representation politics and it is so brain dead like this whole idea of oh well now we have our own genocidal maniac who looks like us like uh, oh dub is that a win like <laughs> are we are we meant to feel good about this and and i think like it, it, this is the only time i've seen it done successfully and i was really nervous when i first saw this as well and saw that they had this this black guy imperial because i was like oh god if they don't handle this right it's gonna look stupid and um, but i think this awareness of these dynamics you know the this kind of very famous um dynamic between um black men and white women pitted being pitted against each other and and not realizing that there is a that there is a that there's more in common than 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 in division um and 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 having the awareness to play that up instead of doing this stupid shit where it's like aren't you people fucking happy we've cast a black imperial now and don't forget uh the empire is actually good because it's diverse like no suck my dick this is the only right way to handle it and i'm glad that we are kind of hopefully starting to move beyond the the facile politics of uh stupid nazi diversity (laughs) programs Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of minorities as Imperials, we do get a South Asian uh, character yeah. here that I just want to shout out because I'm South Asian. Um, his name is an attendant Felzonis, but it just sounds like Kelzone to me. <laughs> um, but it, like part of that also like rings true in the sense that like there were like South Asians who were like subsumed by the British Raj rule um, and they were brought into the system. So as long as it like is aware of those politics or like what they're doing with Miro and Blevins and like playing them off each other in a room where both clearly stand out and kind of don't belong. Um, I think that all kind of works. Um, I do like how this uh, attendant Felzoni, um, he's basically set up like Podrick Payne, which I don't know if anyone who watched the show Game of Thrones would <laughs> pick this up, but when he is the squire for Brienne in the books, um, he constantly says, sir, my lady, um, because he's unsure what gender performance best describes Brienne, which is great in its own way. But this attendant also is unsure whether to address Deidre as sir or ma'am like half the time. So he's kind of like fumbling and saying both 90% of the time. And I just thought that was a little cute sequence. Yeah, Um, it's also a good riff on the kind of uh, sci-fi trope of calling everybody in a position of power, sir. Um, And I I get where that comes from. Um, Well, Star Trek does it most prolifically, but I think they've even used it in Star Wars before. 
I get where that comes from. Um, I sometimes can convince myself that I like it, but I like seeing it undermined here as well, where like at first I was about ready to be like, yeah, yeah, fine. They call they even use sir for women in this universe. And then the dude is obviously backing up because he knows he's fucked up. And I was like, that's also quite good. It's nice to see that that trope um, subverted in quite a good way. I don't think they're making a particularly interesting feminist like critique of it, which it, it is long overdue to have. But I, it was nice nonetheless. And things like, you know, putting a reading like that on when a show is this good and this strong with its details, I'm more inclined to give it the benefit of the doubt that that is a, or at least it's baked into the ide- ideology that goes into the production and it manifests itself in those very real ways like you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so why don't we move on to the space lesbians because Woo-hoo. they are separated and it is very sad. Um, we see Cinta very briefly in this episode. She's still on Aldani, but we get one of the coolest shots so far, or at least especially in this episode of the Star Destroyer entering the Aldani system um, because we obviously hear it first. We hear it kind of come out of hyperspace. We hear its massive engines and we really get to see Cinta. Sorry, there's some kind of construction happening. Do you hear that? Oh, yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to talk about the space lesbians? Yeah, sure. I can have a go. Um, yeah, so so we get this really great kind of uh, half, I, I would almost call it like a John le Carre style kind of uh, vignette of, of, of Cinta. And, and we get a confirmation through through this kind of vignette, we get a confirmation, one, that she is still alive on Aldani, which was good because it, we weren't totally certain. Um, and also that she's moving to her next point. Um, and then we get a good kind of uh, a, a subsequent cut uh, follow up uh, through Vel, uh, who is in Coruscant looking like Veronica Lake. Um, just beautiful. I didn't recognize her at first as well. And maybe it's because I was too excited by the the idea of there finally being blondes in Star Wars. Of course, right after I dye my hair brown. Um, uh, that It took me a minute to process that that was uh, Vel, uh, more like him, Velonica Lake. Ha ha ha. Great jokes for me. <laughs> um, and she and Clea have a discussion. And this introduces one of, I think, the. I'm sure I say this every time we talk about the politics of the show, but I think this is one of the most interesting political strands that the show has introduced so far, which is... Uh, Vel and Clea are not impressed with Luthen, and because they are so unimpressed with Luthen, they now need to kill Cashin, uh, because I think the line is something like, uh, now that he has Luthen in his head, uh, they need to kill him. And, and this kind of also confirms for me in a small way what I, was, what I was kind of suspecting, but wasn't sure of from the previous six episodes, which is I think Clea is the brains of the operation. Um, I think she's also the more radical of the two. Uh, and I, I think uh, it, this kind of makes me think that Clea is possibly maneuvering Luthen to her own ends, which are the more radical ends. And it's possibly a bit sick of some of Luthen's kind of bourgeois predilections, particularly in the, uh, I think it was episode five, I think it is, when he's getting really nervous about the heist. And she effectively says to him, uh, nod up or shut up. And, and he kind of decides to toe the middle line a bit and do neither. Um, but she's quite harsh with him. And she's like, this is the way you wanted to do it. Live up to it. And and I think now we're starting to get the sense that she's possibly the more radical wing of, of this this group. We know from the trailers that Luthen and Saad talk at one point. So I kind of wonder if there's possibly between Vel and, and Clea some sort of partisan uh, uh, association, partisan partisanship there. Um, but it really does show us, and as is very good and, and, and very helpful, helpful for a narrative that even the good guys are not as 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 uniformly good and principled and ideologically and, and strategically coherent as we might seem. And just because in uh, the original trilogy, 
we see everybody fall uniformly into line behind Princess Leia and Mon Mothma and uh, all the other various generals and guys who uh, get made general two days after showing up in the Rebel Alliance. Um, even though that kind of apparent uh, consensus exists, um, there's that's not actually a thing that is possible or plausible in in a in a large scale armed rebellion. And in fact, there are many different threads uh, and many different approaches to the strategy and ideology. And uh, whether or not a rebellion or uh, any sort of organized political group is able to either synthesize or overcome those differences, those splits and contradictions, um, is a is a is an indicator of its ability to survive and succeed. And in the immediate term, we know that the rebellion does survive and succeed. But in the longer term, given the context of the sequels, we know that it absolutely doesn't. And it, it it's inability to resolve its own contradictions fucks it terminally, and then we end up with uh, whatever the mess the sequel movies were. Uh, so, so all of this kind of getting wrapped in there, and again in a very kind of John Le Carre, Tinker Taylor bit, is is great. It's really just the show bouncing from strength to strength to strength in a way that I don't think Star Wars has ever done. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the the Clea stuff is really fascinating in this episode because first we see that she's kind of eavesdropping on Luthen and Mon Matsuma's speech when they're in the front of the store and she's in back. Um, so I think that's immediately... Um, like, I thought, wait, is she possibly an Imperial spy that's embedded here? <laughs> um, and I don't think that's the case, but it immediately just starts makes you think a little bit harder about this character, which then leads us into an extended sequence of Clea and her big red riding hood. Uh, Make, use, making use of public transportation hubs and then going through the main city residential area. Um, she's passing by all these stormtroopers and Imperial guards. This is actually where we first see start seeing the stormtroopers, um, which is like, okay, they're like, it's basically like the NYPD locking down on, uh, what's it called? Transit evaders. <laughs> um, it basically has that kind of feel to it. Um, and then, like you say, I was going to say the spy who came in from the cold instead of Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, but it's very much like that. Like the way the scene is shot, the way we're seeing her reflection in mirrors, like in the ceiling, like we're asking ourselves, is she being tailed? Whose side is she on? Who is she meeting? And I think that's very much what's established when we first see Val from a long shot and we're like, Who's the long-haired blonde lady? We do we know anyone like this? Yeah. Is that Deidre? Is that the closest like match? And then when it actually pulls off and reveals Val, um, it's like oh shit, 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 shit. Um, and then like they have that great talk about this is what revolution take uh, looks like. So yeah, um, they really played with our expectations, and I like how Clea kind of emerged as a much bigger player than we thought she yeah. would be. Yeah, and it's also really good because one of my uh, my favorite parts the uh, of Rogue One that I always kind of you know joke about but i also quite seriously take as as one of the best parts of rogue one is um the 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 spy the espionage corps uh, as, as sort of represented in, in the film by Cashin and general draven uh, who's the principal from sex ed for anyone who doesn't know the star wars character names off by heart um mon mothma and the rebel alliance the rebel council say one thing uh, and Draven and Cash and go, no, that's fucking dumb. We're not doing that. They never say it to any of their faces. They just go ahead and do what they want. And so Mon Mothma's like, we're going to run an extraction uh, mission to get Galen Urso out. And Draven's like, absolutely not. Dumb as shit. Kill him. Uh, and then later, uh, they're like, uh, Jin's like, we got to go. We got to go to Scarif. And the Rebel Council is like, no, no, we can't do that. We're massive pussies and won't do anything good. And Jin and Cashin are like, nah fuck that we're going and introducing that sense of like hard-nosed radicalism and the people who are so ideologically committed to doing the right thing that they don't care if they don't have perfect democratic consensus on every single thing people who are willing to act as the vanguard uh, of the movement and um, it is great it's a great thing to get in there 
And it also gives a sense of kind of aging or or generational uh, politics to uh, to to the, the the rebellion. And I don't mean that in like, oh, boomers versus millennials. I mean that. And these are the kind of original rebels in a lot of ways. These are the guys who have had to tough it out when things were really hard. They've ha- they're having to deal with the stuff before the money is in. So these are the guys who have really had to rough it. And they know what they have to do, how to survive, and they know they have to make uncomfortable decisions to succeed. And then there's this kind of later generation that we're watching, you know, kind of struggle to be born right now as best represented by Mon Mothma, who aren't going to have to deal with the rebellion before it has money. And Mon Mothma has literally always had money, and she's going to bring in money. And there's a whole bunch of rebels who will never have understood the rebellion and what it means to rebel in a time when you're not backed by capital, hard capital. Um, And those guys are going to be the ones like Mon Mothma who are going to be increasingly liberal and who are going to be the right wing kind of drag on the the strategic and tactical success of of the rebellion and and the older kind of guys the the veterans the grizzled veterans don't really put up with that and they don't really care about the kind of principle of democracy they care about the the principle of liberation and and seeing that introduced here already and to see that also picked up from Rogue One uh, it rules like I really can't believe there's a TV show on TV that is enunciating something that so many left wingers have have struggled to uh, to kind of carefully articulate and to to kind of uh, popularize among people uh, especially in the last I would say a hundred years uh, so it rocks uh, it really rocks yeah speaking of things I didn't expect out of a television show I I didn't know that I would be hooting and hollering about Mon Mothma, but this episode kind of did it. And it's probably a good spot to get into now since you kind of mentioned it. So uh, it's kind of like the Mon Mothma stuff is kind of twofold. We get one scene with her and Luthen, which we've alluded to a couple of times. And this is like her like, my stars, you actually did this, didn't you, Luthen? <laughs> like, she's like very like, I didn't know this is what I was funding. But I think as Luthen says, like deep down, she did know that's exactly what she was in for. And this is basically the Stellan Skarsgård quotable hour. Yeah. Like him saying stuff like, has anyone ever made a weapon that has never been used? Or Empire has been choking us slow, so slowly, we can't feel it, which is a line we talked about earlier. Um, it's just a great way to... It helps kind of like set Mon Mothma up more for her later scene, but I really like how this is this is essentially a liberal being confronted with what it actually takes. Yep. Yep. Um, it's not your charity charities and your nonprofit foundations and your balls and galas and your you know celebrity like Spotify podcasts or whatever. <laughs> um, ironic to say it, I guess, <laughs> on a podcast. Uh, but like it, it it is a good conversation to have rather than just having the later converse, conversation where Mon Mothma is like, oh, by the way, I'm secretly a radical. Um, I think it's actually good to start her off in this position uh, before we have that later scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm immensely compelled. Uh, Genevieve O'Reilly is delivering the performance of a lifetime in this, and that is not something I expected to ever say about any Star Wars, except for maybe Mark Hamill as Luke um, and Empire. But she's really, every single time she's on screen, I'm like, my skin feels like it's crawling and itching. I'm nervous for her and upset about her. And just like, you know, I want to like, I want her husband dead. I want her daughter thrown in like kitty jail or whatever it is. Like, I think they suck. I think all the people around her suck. But I also think she sucks. <laughs> and it's 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 awesome to kind of have this feeling of like, I am rooting for her, but I also really want her to get smacked down because I think she sucks politically. And and to have that kind of nuanced characterization rocks. Genevieve O'Reilly absolutely fucking nailing it. Um, I have a more cynical read on everything that happened with Mon Mothma in this episode than I think anybody else does right now. And that's fine. I'm happy to do it. But like... Um, 
I think she's getting dragged around the, by the nose a bit. And I think she's really only going where the money is. Um, and I think her her kind of gut instinct, her reaction to Luthen as maybe having engineered the bank heist as being like, I can't do this. I'm not going to work with you anymore. I'm not going to make this meeting. I think that's who Mon Mothma really is. I think that's who Mon is. I think she's fundamentally coy. Um, and I think this conversation she has with her Silver Fox uh, banker friend uh, is, is, is interesting because he, as a banker, is the one who puts out the feelers first on her fellow traveler status, he's really the one who's sounding her out. She's obviously trying to figure out what his position is, but I think he's been doing it before. Uh, like, I think he 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 got there before she was and figured out that he was in kind of safe hands before she had, she'd really grown the balls to do it. And so when he's dropping these kind of goading remarks about her politics, it's, it is sussing her out as much as she is sussing him out. And it's only once he has effectively committed himself to actually being a rebel, i.e. he is a banker with access to lots of money, has decided that the rebellion is the right and sustainable thing for the future of his interests. That's really, to me, the moment in which Mon Mothma actually seems to go back on her previous anger at Luthen and really starts to get into this question of, will you fund us? And I think that, you know, I, everyone else has had a far more charitable reading on that than, than, than me, which is fine and totally legit. But I think there's this kind of aggressive kind of patheticness to, to, to Mon's character. Um, and she won't go anywhere where she doesn't see the money and the power yet, which is why she's still hanging around in the fucking Senate, delivering speeches that nobody cares about to nobody who's listening. Um, because she thinks this is where the edifices of power are, and she will only go when she knows that other more powerful people have trod there first. And and having this elucidated in such a nice way and this stunningly choreographed and stunningly written and acted scene that has this great sense of rhythm and movement and tension it, it is like a good way of making her both seem vulnerable and likable and also like a blithering dumbass. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit that isn't exactly my read. And I think a lot of that's just like, I know how most television shows go. Um, so I, I just, the language of television tells me like, Luthen is kind of telling her to either shit or get off the pot. And her scene at the dinner is her taking a shit. Yeah. Um, I say that affectionately. <laughs> um, I do like your reading. I don't think that's like wrong or invalid or anything. It just, it, it wasn't exactly how I kind of contextualized the scene. Um, but something that I just kind of love about her or this character or whatever they're doing on this is that and again I want to reiterate that Mon Mothma is a blank slate for me because she's minimally in Return of the Jedi and Rogue One which is all I've seen her in but so they're setting up her character her family life which as you say fucking sucks I hate her fucking daughter yeah um and her political one and where they intersect um and I think Genevieve O'Reilly is doing a great job in like She's almost playing like three or four different roles all into one role. Yeah. And you can say that's what any actual human being is doing. But she actually has to perform these roles in a way that are different to each like version of herself. Is Whereas Luthen kind of has a cover and like a whole other costume. Mon Mothma is always playing the role of Mon Mothma. Yeah. But it's Mon Mothma, the rebel or the radical or the neoliberal, whatever you want to say. Mon Mothma, the husband or husband, the wife, <laughs> um, the mother. Uh, Mon Mothma, the, you know, kind of like cagey political player. Um, she doesn't have a business front. She doesn't have anything she can really slip behind. She really just has her performance, her policies, her smiles, um, which is why I love this extended sequence of her talking to Tay Colma, who's the oh, banker from Shandrila, so where 
she's doing like her version of a John Le Carre story. Um, Cause they're basically like, instead of walking through the streets, they're just walking through the halls of her nice little condo. And she's directing him as like, smile here, turn there, put your arm around me, laugh. Like she's not only just doing the information exchange that needs to happen here. She's like directing him both like an actual director of a television show, but also like as this kind of feels like me, like her not being a coward, like not yeah. not not being a coward. But this is like how, why I kind of have the opposite read as you. Um, it's more just this is her actually taking charge of a situation as opposed to just being let me know where I can donate my money to. Even though I guess in the end it's all about getting the money. So maybe your read is actually the better one in the end. I, I think for me the the kind of the the way that the scene plays out is, is sort of like. Um, it, it's the performance of politics versus the actual execution of it. And the fact that Mon thinks that she can choreograph it by being like, we're going to walk from, you know, spike tape A to spike tape B, and we're going to smile and simper at the exactly correct moment. And we're going to call this conducting politics because we're going to speak in, in sort of metaphor and symbols instead of saying what we plainly mean. That to me feels like the performance of politics. And then you see the the, the sort of Aldani lot who who don't really do that, except for when they do it. And they do it in a really interesting moment that we'll come back to in a, in a different episode um but but they're the execution of politics and they know that you know you know the the, the fact of the robbery on aldani right they didn't worry about the optics of that they went and fucking did it because it needed done and they didn't worry that the imperial media and propaganda machine would make it out like they're all just like these gangsters and criminals errant criminals they were like something needs done and we're gonna do it and they get it done and and mon's whole thing feels like she's still obsessing over the kind of performance performance of it and and the aesthetics of politics instead of actually doing the politics and um, and it's the kind of like west wingy approach um in some ways and i'm almost wondering if her kind of her story in this is going to be um kind of centered around her having to learn that the aesthetics of the politics uh doesn't matter anymore and i'm wondering if that's going to be her evolution towards the the mon mothma that we see in jedi which is not made up to the nines not wearing six inch heels not wearing these like massive gaudy dresses and and jewels and necklaces and you know just just not with the super curled and rollered hair just dressed down doing what needs to be done and not really thinking about how it looks and i'm almost wondering if that's going to be her kind of bent in this this show no that's a, that's actually a very very good call um to see her kind of strip away a lot of that performance um because i do think like the performance of politics, the performance of power is part of power, um, but it has its limits. It's the line you love from Game of Thrones, you know, po power is power. Um, it calls back to a line I love from Game of Thrones that like power is a shadow on a wall. It's a trick, you know, power resides where men believe it resides or people, if you want to be more equi equanimous about it, that's definitely not a word. <laughs> um, either, either which way, but I think, I think this is showing um, broadly, just not through Mon Mothma, but through a lot of these stories where performance and actual power intersect. But there's also the bit where at some point someone's going to have a bigger sword or a dragon or a giant Death Star. And then the performance of power immediately means nothing in the face of something like that. Yeah. Um, and then you can see why Mon Mothma would end up being the more like stripped down version that we see in Return of the Jedi, like you were saying. So I think that's a great read. Um, we're almost finding a synthesis between our two takes on the scene. This rebellion will like survive. 
Um, I do like um, the West Wing call out because this scene is shot very much like a West Wing walk and talk, like walking through the uh, halls of the White House or whatever. Even the fact that it's such a pristine set for the Mothma residence, um, it almost feels like you could imagine this is like walking on their way to the Oval Office if you really wanted to. Um, It has all the same kind of symmetrical designs as like the Imperial Security Bureau, but you can also tell it's meant to be kind of homely not homely in like the ugly sense but like it's supposed to feel like a home but it's also a very wealthy home because there's a lot of like gold um and very shiny down to uh like Perrin mothma or her husband's like wardrobe yeah he's ba- basically wearing a jedi robe but bedazzled um which one of my uh favorite things that i read this isn't an original thought but basically padma or sorry mon mothma and Perrin's home life is like a padme anakin au <laughs> like if they had both survived like order 66 and the rise of the empire and they just lived at home as imperial bureaucrats um you know anakin would be off having his dinners with war criminals uh, doing some war crimes himself padme would be probably funding a secret resistance they even have a son or daughter named leia or leda sorry um so it's just like i find that a very fun i don't think that's like a meaningful comparison but i think that is just something that's very fun that's baked not baked into it but it's something that very easily you can read into the situation they've created here yeah yeah um her so the daughter's name is lita and i don't want to get too far into this because it's an insane thing for me to say about someone who's obviously a teenager but uh i'm going to tell everybody to look up the myth of lita and the swan uh it's greek mythology and i'm kind of wondering if this is where they're aiming at for it because it's such a specific name as well it's such a specific name and i've been wondering about it and maybe someone smarter than me will go read something and then tell me something smart to think about this but i'm not that person but uh yeah lita and the swan the mythology the greek mythology it's zeus and and lita the the spartan princess Uh, uh, and yes, uh, I wonder if something will be made of that in episodes to come. Lita in this episode was also wearing all white at the dinner party, which immediately makes me think of Swan. Hmm. Um, so maybe you're onto something there. Um, I definitely know I've read that or I'm aware of that myth. I do not remember the point of it. Um, does she start as an ugly duckling and grow up or something? Nope. Uh, it's way more fucking horrific than that. Uh, Lita is uh, seduced by that Zeus. That was a joke. But... Who, oh, fuck. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Classic. All right. Never mind. Why, uh, anything else you want to say about this episode? I know we have some other stuff in the notes, but I imagine we can return to, say, Cyril's Mad Men-esque style cubicle later <laughs> on. I figure we'll, we, it's more of a setup, but they do use some very good imagery. It reminds me of Mad Men or the apartment when he's in the Bureau of Standards. Yeah. Um, just drowning in bureaucracy. But I think that is just kind of like what's it called like very softly mentioned here and we'll get more of it in later but is there anything else you want to mention from this episode um i want to say that i thought episode six was the best episode when i saw it now i think episode seven is the best episode now that i've seen it so who knows what's gonna happen to my brain this week okay uh, i i do got one thing now that i um so this reminds me a lot of Season three, episodes four and five of Game of Thrones. Um, Episode four is the one where Daenerys burns down Astapor and takes over the Unsullied. It's like the big set piece. Like everyone talks about it. It's like one of the greatest moments ever in the show or whatever. Um, And I think it's a baller episode, one of the absolute best. And then the episode after that, it necessarily has to come down. Like you're not going to like do that every episode a third of the way through your entire saga. But then that episode that comes after Kiss by Fire is just 
so good because it just brings everything back down to that character level. That's where you have Jamie and Brienne in a bathtub. That's where you have um, the Hound and his trial by combat with the Brotherhood Without Banners. That's where John and Egret fuck in a cave. Like, there's a... Like, I don't expect every episode to just get better or have higher stakes. And what this show did with episode six and episode seven is show me that it can build to these climaxes and then properly just come back down into what was working the entire time, the character, the mood, the tone of the story. And then I assume it's just going to build to another big climax in, say, episode nine or ten or something like that. So I appreciate that it can do a loud episode and follow it up with a quiet episode, but I don't feel like there's a drop off in either quality or what I'm seeing on screen. Yeah. Uh, so because all this drilling is still going on, do you want to just go ahead and uh, do all our patron thank yous? Yes. Woohoo, my time to shine. Uh, today, we would like to thank the following $10 patrons. Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothaman of Polinka. Silent Spider, Guardian of Kareth Ungol, a.k.a. Ed the Revelator. I Wendell, aka Haley Glyphs, Aranmo Minyatar, aka Matthew Abbott, Ithenor of Kokorthad, Maddie Hugh, <laughs> Sal Quendil, aka Cam Lewis, and Dolaneth, aka Zach Newman. And we'd also like to thank the following $5 Patreons Elenoma of Venhatola, aka Elise, and Bravo of the Catondil, aka Scott. And I feel like at this point I should do a PBS. This program is only possible thanks to donations from viewers like you. Oh, that's great. And Cam and Zach, we promise for our next episode, we will have um, actual uh, names for you. You will no longer be Elvish Anonymous going forward. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get access to special bonus content and early access to episodes. And I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me finishing my coverage of Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers and covering House of the Dragon and A Song of Ice and Fire at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, a.k.a. J.R. Tweedin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be having the world's most deserved shower beer. Toasting a pint, or should I say toasting a Revnog to our sound <laughs> editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. And we really get to see Cinta. Uh, sorry, there's some kind of construction happening. Do you hear that? Oh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should wait or I... <laughs> uh, <laughs>
Uh, do you want to talk about the space lesbians? 